So I got my first royalty check for Irish Thoroughbred, which is my first published silhouette. And I didn't understand. And I called her and I said, I got this check and it was, I never had this much money. I said, they already paid me because they've given me, you know, $3,000. That was my advance for my first book. And she said, Nora, they keep paying you. Maybe that was, that was the moment. Oh, <laughs> I'm Nora Roberts and they keep paying me. <laughs> that was the voice of Nora Roberts. Whew. <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> Yes, it is happening. And you know what? I'm going to say we have been like blessed to have amazing people on. But I think you and I both, when we sent the email, when you sent the email to Nora Roberts, were like, what's going to (laughs) happen? My favorite is that I texted you and I was like, hey, Jen, do you have time to to interview Nora Roberts? Here's the other thing that happened last night. So Mr. Reed's romance said, what are you doing tomorrow? And I was like, well, we're going to be recording an interview with this author. And, you know, he he has no idea who anyone is. Bless you all. And I said, yeah, with Nora Roberts. And he was like, oh, I know that name. And I was like, okay, now I'm nervous. <laughs> Everyone knows her name. Yeah. My in-laws are here this, this week because, you know, we're still renovating this house or, you know, putting up bookshelves. And uh, I literally this morning was like, you all need to leave this house. Like, I can't have you in here. Goodbye. Welcome, everyone, to Fate of Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. And I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor, and you're about to hear our conversation with Nora Roberts. Do we need to explain who Nora Roberts is for people who are not Mr. Reed's Romance? Actually, go do your homework and know your betters and come back and listen then. Fine. Here we go. Nora Roberts. Okay, so let's get started. I think we should begin, if it's okay with you, at your beginnings. How did you come to romance? There's sort of a legend about your romance, your first book. (laughs) It's a true legend. (laughs) Oh, good. It's a true legend. Would Um, you tell us? (laughs) Yeah, well, first, I was really lucky to grow up in a family of readers. Everybody read in my house. So books were everywhere. So I grew up with stories. Uh, My father was a movie projectionist and a stagehand, so those kind of stories, too. And so I always read, and I always thought everyone made up stories in their heads. So I never really thought about being a writer until the blizzard of 1979. But I live in the country, back a lane about a quarter of a mile. I didn't have four-wheel drive. I had a kindergartner and a preschooler. Oh, my gosh. Three feet of snow. Uh, No morning kindergarten, day after day. And during the period um, after I had kids, I started reading Harlequins because... I could chain the kids down for a nap and read a book. So I, I really, you know, these are great by Winspear and Ann Mather and all of that. And uh, the Gothic romances, um, Phyllis Whitney and Victoria Holt, Mary Stewart, my absolute favorite. So then I thought, well, I'm, I'm going crazy. I'm going crazy. This is, you know, day <laughs> That's six. That's fully understandable. So real. Not being able to leave the house. 
And so I got a notebook and I just started writing a story down. My notebook, because first I didn't have a typewriter at that point. And because I couldn't leave my kids, I had to be there. The older one would have (laughs) murdered the younger one. (laughs) And I just fell in love. I mean, it's like, this is so much fun. Why didn't I ever think of doing this before? And that that was it. And I just never looked back. Was that your first book, that, that notebook book? No, it was my <laughs> first book, but not the first that I sold. So at that point, I mean, there isn't, so this is 1979. There, Where do you go from there with a notebook full of story? Well, exactly. There, there was no silhouette at that time. There was only really Harlequin. I think Dell had candlelight romance if I remember correctly, a long time ago. So I sent things off, you know, cheerfully to Harlequin. And um, the rejections, many of them, uh, because I would just start another book and keep going, said that this was good. And I showed a lot of promise, but they already had their American writer. Gosh, we've heard that story again and again. We've already got our American. Yeah, yeah. It was Janet Daly, which, you know, is a whole nother story. Um, <laughs> Maybe we'll get there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then Silhouette opened up in 1980, and they were looking for new American writers. And I fit. I was new. I was American. And um, so I started, I sent a book off to them, and I got a phone call. And I know it was hot, so it had to be in the summer. The kids were screaming in the other room. (laughs) Then Nancy Jackson, um, with her British accent, was on the phone from New York and said they wanted to buy my book. And it was, what? (laughs) (laughs) Seriously? (laughs) It was, yeah, the, the best moment of my life. And I had just hired Amy Burkauer with Writer's House as an agent. I mean, like, like the day before. Oh, wow. And so when I told Nancy, I just hired an agent. She said, you should have told me that right away. I need to talk with her. And I'm not. I didn't know then that Nancy Jackson never said goodbye. That was just her way. And I thought, I've I've screwed myself. (laughs) Totally. Uh, But no, it it all worked out. And that's, I'm sorry, you said Nancy Jackson? Nancy Jackson. You're still with Amy all these years later, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Nancy was with you for a long time or? Yeah, um, several years. And then she shifted to young adults. I think they did Silhouette start a young adult with some other line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they passed me to Isabel Swift, who is phenomenal. I've been very lucky. And I was with Isabel until um, I stopped writing for Harlequin. So let's talk about that. You write very quickly. I mean, I think everybody who's listening probably knows that, but were you a fast writer even then in the early days? It's just my wiring. I'm, I have a fast pace. One of the things on my list that I'd like to talk about, and I think this is a good place for us to talk about it because it probably comes from the early days too, is you have, I think when I think as a writer about protecting the work 
and making space for the work and for the writing, you are often the first person I think of because you are so focused and so committed to making space for writing and protecting that space. Could you talk about that? Is Does it come from, you know, having kids screaming outside in the hallway and just mm. insanity? <laughs> I can still write. I like the quiet, but I can still write in uh, any situation because I started writing two kids in the house. But we had rules. We had rules. And when they were little guys, the rule was when I was writing and I was right there, don't bother me unless there's blood or fire. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes there was blood. We never had any fire, but sometimes there was blood and you stop and you deal with it. When they got older and more responsible, it was arterial blood and active fire. <laughs> These are like book titles. Have you ever called yeah. a book Blood or, <laughs> Blood or Fire? Yeah. Because Mr. No, Community. I'm, I'm working, you know, I'm working here. <laughs> so this was my job. What would they have done? I would have had a sitter uh, or daycare or something if I worked in an office outside the home. This is my writing time. This is my job. Now, I did write. Uh, when they were in school, and when they came home from school, I stopped because you got homework, you got snacks, you you know, you got kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I would go back to work when they finally went to bed, and I did that for a lot of years. I was a single parent for a while, so it was just me and them. They outnumbered me. <laughs> I, you know, your your kids are your first responsibility, but when you you've got to work to pay the bills. So the kids don't starve and don't go naked. So you make it work. Now your kids are grown. And one of the things when we were emailing about this time, you said, you know, can we do it on a weekend? Because the weekdays are my writing days. And I I said to Jen, I think this is something that, you know, I need to internalize as a writer too. There isn't, it's, it's a job. You sit in the desk and you do the work. It's a really great job, but it's a job. Yeah. So it's interesting. You talked about starting off in writing in longhand. So how did that change? I mean, obviously, like, are you a person now who can, like, write on your phone? Oh, my phone. My God, I don't do anything on my phone. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, because I feel like there's a movement now to younger writers who are like, yeah, I wrote this book on my phone. I feel like it's a weird new longhand. Like, I just did it where I could. That's where I was when I could write. Whatever process works for you is the correct process. There's no one way. So at this point, you're writing, um, it's the 80s, and you're writing silhouettes, and Mm -hmm. you're writing Harlequins. No, I never really wrote for Harlequin. Oh, okay. Okay. They bought Silhouette. Right. I forget when, but I I really wrote for the Silhouette imprint. Is this the time when you start to really feel like romance is coming? We know the 80s is when the romance world just sort of exploded. Mm-hmm. And at what point did it really feel like, oh, this is happening? This this romance is real. The readers are showing up and this is a big deal. I don't know that I ever had a like come to Jesus moment on that. It was all gradual and and I'm again about the work. So I don't know that I noticed so much. I mean, I went to conferences and that sort of thing. And I had a a local chapter, but I didn't really go to meetings because... Of RWA. Yeah. I mean, I I went to one meeting of uh, Washington Romance Writers 
way, way back. Uh, I think my first book was out and I had sold two more. And I went to my first meeting and there was some controversy at the time about the silhouette contract. And most of these women, I'm going to say right off, were not published. A couple were. And they're all bitching and whining and carrying on about Clause 19B. I still remember. And one of them turned to me at one point. I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. And she said, Nora, what do you think about Clause 19B? And I I said, oh, because I really didn't know. I don't read contracts. I sign them. (laughs) And that was the end of that. And it's absolutely true. I have an agent. Right. She reads mm-hmm. the contracts. Right. If she told me not to sign, I wouldn't sign. You know, so it was, it's my community. It was my community. And RWA offered so much support and the local chapter, so much support and information and networking opportunities. And I met a lot of my friends there, people I'm still very good friends with today, but I never really. I mean, it all just sort of built and, and happened. So I couldn't say that I had this, oh, my God, look at all this. It was just, I was just writing books. So you have a bookstore mm-hmm. in Boonesboro, Maryland. You have, you have several things in Boonesboro, Maryland. <laughs> um, but you have a bookstore in Boonesboro, Maryland, and you're so welcoming to uh, new and established writers to come and you do signings every time you have a book out in Boonesboro. And I've been there twice and it every and both times it's just an amazing experience because people come from all over the country and world to Boonesboro to meet you and to and to get books signed by you at these book signings and they stand in line for hours. They wrap around the building. It's a, it's an incredible experience. And you also have this very rich reader community online um, that you clearly built when the internet arrived. And yeah. so I'm curious about your relationship with readers and how this community, how you built this community, and then the, the work as you think of it through readers. I think it's really important to be accessible And I like being accessible through the internet because you don't have to put makeup on. (laughs) Um, You know, you haven't had your hair done, so your roots are showing, (laughs) stuff like that. Um, But um, I'm happy to hear from readers most of the time. Now, Laura, Laura Reith, my publicist, she handles social media. If I were to try to do the social media, I wouldn't be writing. Right, right. I would much rather be run. She's much better at it anyway. But in the early days, you know, there were message boards on AOL and stuff like that. And I would, I'd go on here and there. And it was, it was fascinating, just fascinating. And you, you did build uh, relationships. Uh, problems started with some people. Now you've got a target on your back, so they will—they just can't help themselves. And we have some problems with that, certainly in the social media that Laura does. We just had to put up another post yesterday, you know, knock it off with the... I love Vincent, the in-depth books in particular. Mm-hmm. I love, love, love these books, but 
you need to do this, 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 this. You need to do this, this, this. No, I don't. Read them or don't. Like them or don't. But don't tell me how to do my job. And I know you used a ghostwriter on that last one because it didn't sound like you. Oh, oh fuck you. <laughs> oh, just completely. Because I've been very clear about that. Mm-hmm. I, I work really hard. And I love my work. That's the downside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I had to do it myself, I wouldn't do it at all at this point. But Laura's so good at it that we've we've got a really nice community on Facebook on both pages. And I do the blog and I handle things like I'm wearing my I I have personally explained the process to you, Deborah. <laughs> sweatshirt. We all love that. Um, because I will, I am very patient, I think. And I try to be very gracious because some people don't know they're being offensive. So you give them chances because, and you try to explain. But then when you just keep at it, you're going to piss me off. And I, <laughs> that, that, that's really a mistake. Yes. It's a big, big mistake. <laughs> yes. Well, let's talk about that. One of the the hallmarks, I think, of your your place in romance and in publishing in general is your intense and important advocacy around the issue of plagiarism because you've experienced it multiple times. Yeah. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how how that that experience shaped your work, your writing, your your life, and then it feels like it happens more in romance or in genre in a really interesting way. And I wonder if you have thoughts on that. I still remember exactly. I was on a message board again, and there's that connection with the readers. And I read this on a message board that this reader had read Notorious by Janet Daly. Shortly after she had read a reissue, because my book was six, seven years prior to Notorious, Sweet Revenge, and said, there are big chunks that are the same word for word. And I'm thinking, she's wrong, because I knew Janet. That, That has to be wrong. But my younger son was working in the bookstore that day, and I said, bring a copy of Notorious. It was out in paperback home with you and I opened it up to one of the pages that she had cited and I couldn't believe it I mean I literally just lost my breath there it was obvious it was word for word not just a sentence but a chunk and then you look on and there's another chunk and there's a scene on and on and on and I it was on a weekend I called my agent. You know, we started dealing with it, and it was ugly and hurtful. And I knew her, so and I'd never experienced anything like this. And a lot of the advice was, we'll just keep it quiet. Yes. We'll just keep it quiet. She will, you go through, her agent said, go through the manuscript. Her or, or go through the, I think they sent me the manuscript and just take out whatever is in question. 
What? And I actually started to do that. And I was sitting on my deck and I was doing that and thinking, this is crazy. There are pages. And it's if I if you take this, and I called my agent again and I said, Amy, she's she was so hot because Janet's agent had just called her to tell me to hurry up because the publisher wanted to go to a second printing. Oh, so they were gonna just take out all of that stuff and reprint. Oh, you don't back an Irish woman into the corner. <laughs> and that was it. That was all that was over. I wanted her blood in my throat after that. That was just, uh-uh. Yeah. yeah. There was an RWA thing coming up. She, she, we agreed that we would keep it quiet and deal with the lawyers, that I would not go to the press. She would not go to the press. We would see, you know, about pulling the book. And then I, I went down to, to speak to a library, uh, friends of the library thing, the day before an RWA conference in Orlando. And she broke it. She broke the story. So she's a liar on top of being a thief and put me in a really big, terrible spot. Well, how did she spin it? Oh, she had, it was inadvertent. It was unconscious. Oh, right. She was so sorry. Right. Feel bad for me. Yes. Yes, feel bad for me. I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. I don't know how it happened. Boy, I just must have read that I don't know how I copy and pasted. (laughs) And then I was... I was going down the elevator the next morning to get the paper because I had spent, I don't know how many hours dealing with reporters um, after it broke. And I'm writing in the elevator and I'm reading this article. And it said that, you know, her brother had been sick. And this oh, is Janet's the full, the full yeah. banana here. <laughs> and her dog died. And I love dogs. I've always loved dogs. I have dogs. But I, I just laughed hysterically. And there's some strange woman. And I punched the woman, you know, not like pow, but like, <laughs> her dog died. Oh, <laughs> oh, no, I'm so sorry. And I said, no, no, you don't get it. <laughs> That's why she had to steal from me. Yeah. And she told me it was only the one time. Because she, they finally convinced me to talk with her on the phone. Oh, and you were friends. She told me, she swore, she swore to me it was only one time. And I went up and I got in a, another one of her books because yeah. I had collected oh, them. No. Opened it up and immediately found another book with my work in it. Wow. So two years of court battles and, and just bullshit from her lawyer until we settled. And why do you think, I mean, do you think there's a reason why you were told to keep it quiet? Because that's what they want you to do. That's what everyone wants you to do, basically. Because it's ugly, and it's hard. It really became a a conversation um, in romance writ large. Like, you were, Mm. there was a, there were factions, And a lot of people were really, really pissed at me. Because Uh, they really, a lot of writers were really angry with me. Uh, RT did this, uh, Romantic Times did this whole article on on how I should have left her alone. She was an icon. It's really interesting because it, of course, makes you think, like, if these were men, would we be having this conversation? Right. Do you feel like that's part of it? Oh, absolutely. The, 
the press was full of, see, we told you romance was all the same. They made fun of it. Oh, yeah. And that was, you know, so there you go. But I didn't make fun of it, and and she lost. So Right. Like, to me, when I think about this, I think this is Nora Roberts saying, like, this is a business. And yeah. this is not just, like, fun and games and, like, a cute thing we do. No, this was my my career. This was my work, and she stole it. Well, I remember one writer coming up to me at the conference and saying, you know, um, it's really a form of flattery. <laughs> Instead sure. of punching her in the face, <laughs> I just said, you know, if you compliment my earrings, I'm That's flattered. Funny. If you steal them, I'm calling the cops. Yeah. You know, yeah. Come on. And what's shocking about this is that it's it's not the only time it's happened to you. So, no. um, and I, and it it's really it is something that we see rise up again and again in romance. And I mean, I'm sure it happens in other genres too. But oh yeah, personally, you and I have have had many conversations about plagiarism, and I'm really grateful for all of your guidance. And yeah, well, the Brazilian woman really does take the cake. I mean, she <laughs> stole from so many. Nora and I were both plagiarized by uh, a woman who plagiarized six, I think it was in total, it was almost 60 authors. Yeah, almost 60. Just amazing. That was fun times. We'll put links in show notes to all of this. So what I kind of as a reader, more on the reader side, struggle with is like, this seems like something Amazon could like easily cross-check, you know, documents against other documents. So could not agree more. I'm like, you know, turnitin.com exists for, like, students, so why yeah. couldn't it exist for Amazon? So yeah. I'm curious about, like, your opinion, if you have one, about, like, why can't the gatekeeping be to, like, stopping this before it gets out, and then you guys are all stuck trying to sue this woman in Brazil? Well, I, I will say that there, uh, it's difficult for the publishers, although I got a lot of, with the... Um, is it Soraya? Soraya, whatever her name was. Soraya. A lot of support from my publisher on that one. But the copyright's in the author's name, not in the publisher's name. So copyright infringement is the author's problem. I see. And when I when I sued Janet, I got a lot of support mm-hmm. from my publisher. Or two. I, I had more than one at that time. In fact, um, Silhouette sent me a manuscript that they were going to publish of hers and asked me to look. And yeah, she wow. plagiarized me in the men. Then they dropped the book. In that one too. Oh wow. my mm-hmm. gosh. Oh my gosh. You would think she would have pulled everything back at that point and said, I yeah. want everything back. Yeah. Uh, thank you for talking to us about that. Let's move on to more fun conversation. <laughs> This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Piper Rain, author of Sneaking Around with Number 34, Hockey Hotties Number 4. And listen, (laughs) you could not be more delighted by this. Me neither, honestly. I bought it like just now when I read this. Title alone. Name is Destiny. As you all know from our Ted Lasso episode, I really believe that if you have access to a sports team, they are numbered for a reason. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Okay, here's the story here. 
Warner Langley is a professional hockey player and he's very guarded with the media and he's got this like rough and tumble past from his youth and he gets traded to a new team and his friend from childhood is there and he can't escape his past along with his best friend little sister Imogen Imogen my favorite of all heroin names obviously <laughs> This is honestly amazing. Best friend's sister is a trope we all love. Forbidden romance. Second chance romance. High school sweethearts. Brother's ex-best friend, I guess we would call it. Sneaking around. There's a lot of secrets going on. This is workplace romance. And hockey's hockey. Hockey. What else do you need to know? This is a great one. We love Piper Rain. And we're really excited because you can stick around at the end of this week's episode and hear a taste of the audio. You can find this book in print, in ebook. In audio, you can find it at libraries. And if you want signed books, you can get signed books from Piper Rain's Etsy shop. We'll put links in show notes to all of this so you have access to it. You can follow Piper Rain on Twitter at author Piper Rain and on Instagram at Piper Rain Rocks. Thanks so much, Piper Rain, for sponsoring this week's episode. We talked about your category work. Let's start there with the move from category to single title. How did that happen? Was it you moving as an author? Was it the publisher saying, you know, Nora, you're so fabulous. We need bigger books, more books. I always wanted to write romantic suspense. Always, always, always. But there just wasn't a market for it. Unless you were Mary Stewart or Victoria Holt or Phyllis Whitney. And I remember my agent telling me way back in the day, Build a good foundation. That's the first thing you do. So not only did I take that to mean the work and the quality of the work and your relationship with the readers and everything else and the business, but category, which I respected a great deal or I wouldn't have written them, gave me a foundation. How to write an entire story with character, plot, setting, subplots, themes, uh, description. A friend of mine once said, a book is Swan Lake on the stage with the costumes and the lights and the choreography. And category is Swan Lake in a phone booth. And that's, that's perfect. Yeah. You have to learn how to, how to tell a story briefly and still make it good. And I wanted to do something bigger. I, and then I wanted to write suspense. So when I felt like I had, I had an idea and I had built my foundation, I tried uh, with Hot Ice. And yeah, Bantam bought that. And that was the next step to, to doing you know, mass market paperback, bigger uh, romantic suspense sort of books. And you also seem to have a real affinity for like a a, a certain kind of fantasy. Yeah, I love writing uh, fantasy and magics and fairies and dragons and you know, you really are like a triple threat, <laughs> you know, like you write straight kind of contemporary romance, but then as, as time evolved, there's like the romantic suspense, but even the in-death books are futuristic mm-hmm. as you then enter the nineties where you have kind of more of an opportunity to write single title. How did you balance, I guess, like the needs of the market versus your own interests as a writer? 
Never think about the market. That's good advice. Think about what I want to write. What interests me, What a, well, the idea that's there and pulling at me is much more important to me than the market. But that was after I built my foundation. And then, you know, if, if I write this book that I really want to write and it's crap or nobody wants it, I'll write another one. It, because the market changes, it changes. So by the time, like, I'm going to write this because this is really hot right now. Well, by the time you write that and it gets published, it may not be hot anymore. So write what pulls at you. Write what you need to write. So let's talk about that because what pulled at you was the In-Death series at some point, and you changed your name for it. So can we talk about that? Oh, yeah. That, that uh, Phyllis Whitney, oh, my God, what a brilliant, the most brilliant woman in, in publishing. She was CEO of Putnam when I went there. And uh, she called me one day in that New York accent, Nora. <laughs> you need a hobby. You need a hobby. You, you, you need a hobby. <laughs> and I said, Phyllis, I don't want a hobby. I just want to write. And my agent and Phyllis had both been nudging me to take a pseudonym. Oh, no, I don't, I don't want to take a pseudonym. Those books have to have my name on it. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then Amy said to me one day when we're talking about it after Phyllis and the hobby, She said, Nora, there's Pepsi, there's Diet Pepsi, and there's caffeine-free Pepsi. And I thought, oh, Uh it's marketing, and I could be two popular brands. Let me, I have this idea, this weird idea. Let me play with it, and we'll see. Because I had had this idea for the Eve Dallas character, and... And this setting in New York and all of that, I sort of had all of that. And I, but I thought, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with that. She's so dark and uh, difficult. You know, I don't, I'm not sure what I would do. And then this is like, all right, they want something. I, I said I would do it, but I would have to do something completely different than what I do. And I started writing Naked in Death and really, really fell hard. It was a three-book contract. I started it thinking it would be a trilogy. So I, I sort of structured it that way. And by the time I was into the second book, I was really hoping I could, they would do well. Write 50 more. more. <laughs> yeah, because I'm loving this, this. These are so much fun. And I, a lot of people, since we're on this one, think I took the JD so people would, wouldn't be sure would think I was a man. And that is not true. They're my son's initials. I just thought that would be fun. I didn't, yeah, they're my son's initials. And they wanted me to use a last name that would be close to what would be sure. in the bookstore sure. shelved. So that's wrong. So- well, at the time, was it public that you were both? No. Some people keep that a secret, right? Yeah. Um, my agent felt it was really important for the books to build on their own. If they were going to build, let them build on their own. 
and then you'll be two popular brands. And she was right again. As you see, you might understand why I've been with Amy for (laughs) decades. Right. (laughs) How is writing like a long-running series with the same main characters different from writing other trilogies? Like, how does that, as a writer, how do you plan for, okay, it's even work again? How do you keep that fresh for yourself too? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How does that interact then with like the other stories that might be you might think, oh, this is a three book series. I can conceive of this at the same time. With with uh, the in depth, I know that world and those characters really, really well. Um, I should by this time fifty odd books. Um, so it's it's more when I when I think about what am I going to do with them next. It's what what will drive them usually i'm going to think of the murder you know people a lot of the readers think of them more as relationship books because they're um very attached as i am to the people in them but they're murder books murder is it's the core of it because if she didn't have a murder to solve what would she be doing you know so i I have to think of and what What's around that? And I might have to think or try to think what secondary characters might I bring in this time? And sometimes that just, I don't think about that. It just flows with the story. Oh, this is a good Nadine's coming in because it just makes sense. I enjoy them a lot. I don't have to think about the world. Like when I'm starting a trilogy, I have to build a whole new world again. With the Indes, that world is built, and I, I just have to follow the rules I set up in 1995 or whenever it was. And I want the characters to evolve and change because people do, and their relationships evolve and change. So where, where are we here? And I, and then I just sit down and get started and see what happens with a trilogy i have to i have to have an idea that will work in three parts a big story that i will tell in three parts but each has to be self-contained enough so it has an ending of some sort but some thread that is going to continue through into the next book and the next for the resolution and um, with the with the trilogies I've been doing the last few years, that means a lot of world building. With the year one, I have to build that whole. And who knew that there would be a global pandemic? And at least billions of <laughs> it hasn't wiped us all out yet. Um, so there's that. I just I had that idea, and it, it's, I have to do that, uh, even though it's different than. You know, because it wasn't a romance. Right. Well, that's what I'd like to talk yeah. about. I mean, you re- it really feels to us, we you know, when we were talking before we we started talking with you, it feels to us that there was there there was a kind of significant shift in the way that you were you you wrote or you write. Um and it came in our minds somewhere around the bride quartet. Are we in the right it might area be. here? It's, I'm, I'm so not analytical. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> but now, I mean, the difference between 
the bride quartet say, and the oh, yeah, chronicles of different. the one. Yeah. Right. I mean, right. Exactly. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you have, how you are changing as a writer, how, because it seems a lot of times people get to a certain point in their career and they, you know, just coast and they write the same book over and over again. And you are definitely not doing that. Not so, doing that. No, I get accused of that though all the time some, some by some writer. Well, where yeah. we would never. Um, <laughs> and I don't think it's true because I, I do write different areas. Many, many No, it feels yeah. like people are not yeah. paying attention. <laughs> right. I think that goes back to I have to I have to write what interests me. When the idea comes. Uh, and they're not all good ideas, so you have to work how you're going to articulate that idea into a story on paper. So with the Bride Quartet, I liked the idea of using the whole wedding thing and have each one of those women have have their own place in it and yet interact, and of course, and you know the romances. And I think those were the last straight relationship books that I've written. I can't think of anything. I've, where the relationship is the yeah, primary Yeah, the relationship is, is the reason. It's the reason. So those were probably the last romances I wrote. The, the books that um, come out in the summer in hardcover are generally... Uh, they're going to have a relationship in them because that's what I like to read, too. I like books with relationships in them. But the relationship often doesn't start as it would in most romances, pretty much in the first quarter, uh, even sooner. Mm-hmm. So there are more thrillers with romantic elements or suspense with romantic elements. Or fantasy with romantic elements, yeah. right? I've read just read book two of a series that is kind of more fantasy. Oh, the, the based. awakening and then the becoming. Yes. Yeah. yeah, there's clearly relationships are at the core of the story, but definitely the romance is not yeah. the core of the Lots story. Of relationships. But it's still so yeah. satisfying, right? I like writing about family. I like writing about friendships, the the family you make, family you're born with, that sort of thing. I'm, I mean, that's the world we live in. And those relationships are more part of who we are. So if you're going to write about people, you you write about relationships. Do you feel like, appreciating that you don't think about the market, do you feel like the readers have come with you really readily? Some, some Some do. Some drag their feet. I had a comment the other day, and this woman has read all my books under Roberts, but she just didn't think she would like the Rob books. So, and then I'm, I guess a lot of people picked up more books during the pandemic. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to read so. And, you know, she loved them. But she, no, I don't think I want to read something that's set in the future. So, and I get, get that a lot. Or you get uh, men who will read the Rob books because they think it's a guy. They just automatically think that. And then, you know, their wife or girlfriend or whatever. <laughs> you just read Nora Roberts. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a hard one for some men to take. <laughs> well, with that in mind, I, it sounds like, I mean, between Amy and your, your, your publisher and, and your editor, uh, 
you know, you have such an incredibly supportive community helping you publish. But I wonder, is there ever, has there been over the course of your career, the book that you, the the fight you had to fight in order to tell the story you wanted to tell, to make the change, to do, to, what, has there been a challenge or, you know, have you ever had to really, really push for something? Not for, not to write something, no. No, no, mm-hmm. no one's ever told me that I, that won't work or that mm-hmm. won't do. Plus, I don't talk about it before I start it. Oh, well, that helps, never, right? like, go, I'm thinking of, who would I say that to, my my editor? Oh, no. She can read, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Uh, now, she will right. often ask, you know, so what are you working on? You know, can you tell me anything? And I'll, I'm really bad at it. She knows I'm really bad at it, but I'll try to, you know, walk her through the basics. You know, I'm setting it in uh, well, the, the the one that's coming out, uh, Night Work, uh, in May. Uh, and he said it's, it's all over the place because he travels, and so it doesn't have until the last part of the book where he settles, you know, because she's thinking covers mm-hmm. and stuff, too. You know, give me Give me something. Right, um, right, and names <laughs> and things like that, but I, I don't, um, and never did. Now, I'll tell you an early story, which may explain some of this. After I started selling to Silhouette, I'd sold several books to them. My my agent called me up, very pleased. You no longer have to submit a completed manuscript for to go to contract. You can just submit an outline. And I said, mm-hmm. great. I'm up the phone. I'm like, oh, <laughs> shit. I don't know how to do an outline. <laughs> I don't know what I'm writing until I'm writing it. So what I did, mm-hmm. and I did it three times. I wrote the book, and then I wrote an outline. And it's in there. Oh, my gosh. And we were, we were on <laughs> they the gave you more work. <laughs> I think it was on the Queen Mary, some RWA thing at the bar. <laughs> And I confessed, and she thought that was funny. And never mind, Nora, never mind. You don't have to write that. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. synopsis, I guess. Oh, that's it was. really no, funny. No, you can you can sell on synopsis. Sure. I still couldn't write a synopsis if you held a gun to my head. <laughs> oh no, they're the worst. <laughs> um, Nora, this one is. Uh, some people have have feel awkward about answering it, but I I hope you won't. And that is, you are Nora Roberts, and when people talk about romance in the world, you forever will be associated. You know, you will you are the first name yeah. many people think. And I wonder if you can speak to your. When did you realize that you were something bigger than? All of it, in many ways. I mean, when did you realize that you were, you know, this is the Trailblazer episode. We, This is a Trailblazer series. Let me rephrase it. Like, when did you realize that you were Nora Roberts? Like, you're Nora I Roberts. I think a lot like how romance just, ex- you know, kept rolling and exploding. It just, it was a, a gradual thing. I think one of the milestones for me it was hitting the time slits the first time mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. that was huge and that was was that hot ice or was it no that later? was genuine lies oh okay genuine lies was the first one to hit um 
And so that sort of thing. And I I started this business so naive. Another story, which Amy laughed at quite a bit, is I got my first royalty check for Irish Thoroughbred, which is my first published silhouette. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand. And I called her and I said, I got this check and it was for like, I never had this much money. I said, they already paid me. Oh, because they'd given me, you know, $3,000. That was my advance for my first book. And she said, Nora, they keep paying you. <laughs> Maybe that was... And you were like, this is a good job. Oh. <laughs> I'm Nora Roberts and oh, they keep paying this- me. <laughs> well, and you know what? If people buy enough Irish thoroughbred after this, you're going <laughs> you're gonna to see that return on your royalty statement again. <laughs> This week's episode of Fate of Mates is sponsored by Kenya Gory Bell, author of the Mogul series and the book California Love. California Love is the third in the Mogul series, and it is a celebrity romance. Which, the promise of the premise is right there in the title, isn't it? Prince Sadiq Al-Rashid is a producer and a Hollywood mogul, a billionaire, right? Everyone knows his reputation. As one is. Of course. But his love interest, Lovey Bell Howard, is not up for this man, right? She has dreams of becoming the hottest director in Hollywood. I love a badass woman in a man's world. Yes. And here we are. And he has this reputation for blowing hot and cold, which I also really love. Oh, that's your favorite. Oh, it totally is. So he's producing a multi-million dollar film. She's going to be the director. This is make or break for her. Not so much for him. And she wants to be taken seriously, which is very difficult to do in a celebrity romance when there are paparazzi around. For sure. So put it in my veins. I know. The Hollywood gossip machine is revved up and ready to go. What is going to happen to these two? You're going to have to read California Love to find out. You can read California Love and the rest of the Mogul series free in KU. It's also available in print. And you can visit Kenya at kenyagorybell.com. As always, you can find all this information in show notes. You can also follow Kenya on Instagram. She has weekly author talks. So she is a real advocate for the genre and someone you should definitely be following. Thanks to Kenya for sponsoring the episode. So you were in romance from the beginning. And like, how have you seen the genre changing? Do you think... It has changed? Oh, my God, yeah. It's always changed. And you change, you stagnate. When I first started, the the big part of romance was the the historicals. Catherine Woodaweese, who was the the Latin... Rosemary Rogers. Yes, that's the name that wouldn't come to me. That, that That was the thing. And I didn't want to write those. I read some and I enjoyed them, but it wasn't, like, what pulled at me. So. But gradually, category romance became really big over the course of the 80s. And then contemporary romance became really big. Before that, then, you know, there was gothics, uh, which I did love. You know, they had the woman running away and a light in the window. <laughs> right. All the covers. Yes, women right. running oh, away. Yeah. A nightgown. <laughs> right, that house is coming to get me. <laughs> Well, you said Victoria Holt, and Victoria that, Holt. I mean, that oh, yeah. labels you as a gothic right. lover from right. the beginning. The, the beauty of romance was always that you could, I would absorb elements from any other genre, from any other area of fiction, 
as long as you had that core relationship. The two-person love story and emotional commitment, sexual tension, happy ending. You have that. You can do anything, absolutely anything. Use any spoke on the umbrella. And over the course of time, uh, it seemed to me that the two-person evolved a bit so that the sex wasn't about sexual tension and emotional commitment, but it was more about sex, 50 shades gray. It was, let's, let's just have lots and lots of sex. And when I read books like that, and I'm not just in that particular book, but that sort of thing, I didn't feel the heart. And for me, romance always had heart uh, because it was about emotion and commitment. And it seemed to me pieces of the genre were changing again, which, you know, things change. And that's not the direction I wanted to go. So I went my direction and, and the genre sort of took a different one. Not that there aren't still books that are about two people falling in love and having that sexual tension before they jump into bed and, and then having really good sex, which is a great part of romance, uh, if it's articulated well, and that commitment again. And that upbeat ending, you've got to give me the upbeat ending. I don't know. Anna Karenina, she, she throws herself in front of a train. Why do I want to read that? I don't want to read that. I want to read Jane Eyre. She, everything, Same. all the horrible <laughs> right. things that happened to her, but she wins. She wins in the end. That's what I want. Right. When we had Jane and Krentz on, we talked a lot about core story. And is there something that you feel like when you sit down, there's just no way you're going to avoid? I think one of the most important elements to me are, is character. So the characters are key for me. Character is plot to me. If I don't love the characters or hate them, if I'm, it's a villain and I'm supposed to, I can't write them well. I can't write their dialogue well if I don't know how they speak. I need to know whether I put it in the book or not, what they want to eat for breakfast and what they have in their top drawer, um, where they come from, why they, why they left there, why they stayed there, what they do for a living. Uh, and why they do it, and where they do it. So I think most of the readers, from feedback, it's the characters that pull them in. And for me, as a writer and a reader, it's the characters that pull me in. One of the things for me I've always really respected about your characters, especially that, like, women always have really interesting jobs. You know, she's like an arson investigator or, you know, she's a sculptor. When I talk about, like, how I imprinted on romance, I often talk about that sense that every woman had a cool, interesting job or was doing something doing she loved. Doing something you love. Yeah, whatever. You, you were someone's administrative assistant, but you loved being. That, that's all great and good. I like writing about strong women or women who find their strengths over the course of the book. That's key. I certainly don't want to write about weak men either, but I'm a woman uh, and I want to write about women who find 
stand up for themselves or finally stand up for themselves. Do you have books of yours that you consider your favorites or that you're most proud of? No, my favorite book is the one on sale now because I never have to think about it again. (laughs) We hear that a lot. The least favorite is usually the one I'm working on because it's giving me all the trouble. Yeah. (laughs) Fair. Do you, are there books that you feel, I mean, there, there must be books that you feel just landed in the world in a really special way. Do you have books that you hear the most about from readers? I don't think so. That's what I try to tell the readers because it's absolutely true. Uh, When they say, but you need to do this, this, and this. I said, if I listened (laughs) to you and I did this, this, and this, reader (laughs) B over here is going to say, why the hell did you do that, that, and that? I hate that. Listening to right. readers right. that way lies madness. This is, I'm writing yeah. this down, taking notes. Yeah, take notes. Well, it's, <laughs> I need to put this on my wall. You cannot write with a reader over your shoulder. You cannot do it. One of my favorite things on your website is like a, it's a definitive list of things that even work will mm-hmm. never do. And half of them are like, get pregnant, have a baby, be pregnant, and be worried about being pregnant, babysit. And I was like, she must be hearing from readers who Constantly. really want this. And she's like, look, no. It never stops, no matter how many ways I say no but 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 <laughs> cops have babies yes this cop isn't having one the changes yeah. they, they don't yeah. understand right um because they're not writers that it would change the direction of the series F- yes. and they love the series but it would be so right. funny babies are it would be <laughs> so funny to see you pregnant yeah for the next five years ten years but right. then she has a baby. And then what is she right. going to do? <laughs> what do you do? Oh, she can give it to Somerset. He'll, he'll, why would you have a baby and then say, here, <laughs> take care of my kid? <laughs> you have she a kid. Give it to Somerset. What is the difference between a biological and adopted child? They're children. Oh, yeah. They still need to eat. Yes, yes, they need love and they need your attention. They need to be the center of your world. They, they're entitled to not you. the murder of the week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting to me because it feels like that exact push pull that sometimes, you know, what readers want is not really what readers want. That's exactly right. I said it first. That's, that's exactly right. <laughs> they think they want it. And then they would be like, oh, but she, you know, they're not having sex. Well, no, because the baby's crying. Or, you know, she's not out getting her. Face beat in. Yeah, because, you know, you got to get change the baby's diaper. Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. Oh, that sounds grim. Nobody wants that. Nora, I wonder if you, one of the questions that, that we always ask is, is there anybody who we should make sure that we have, we have talked about or thought about or names that people should know from the early days. Um, people who maybe still aren't with us or stopped writing or or writers, designers, editors. You've named mm. a number of people, but uh, well, there's my good friend Ruth Langan. Ruth Ryan Langan. She writes as R.C. Ryan too. Do I have that right? She has many names, but Ruth Langan, who I met at the very first. RWA conference in Houston in 1981. Um, Ruth and I have been friends ever since. Uh, Dixie Browning, Ruth and Dixie and I uh, did a lot of silhouette, how to write a romance workshops 
when the silhouette used to send us around like this little dog and pony show was, was amazing <laughs> and great fun. Patricia Gaffney doesn't write anymore. She's still with us, but she doesn't write anymore. But, oh, she has some marvelous books, just marvelous books. Uh, Mary Kay McComas doesn't write anymore, but she wrote for Phantom, Love Swept. She wrote a lot of books for Love Swept. These are good friend, friends of mine. Elaine Fox, Mary Blaney, they're all pals of mine. Mary wrote Regency-type historicals. And Elaine wrote a lot of uh, rom-coms. Those are off the top of my head. No, that's great. We want to fill these episodes with just as many names as we can. So that's great. Patricia Gaffney, my gosh. I know that name. I was like, I remember yeah. those. Yeah, yeah, and, and Ruth, um, she's still writing. Ruth, just she's like the Energizer Bunny. She never quits. This was... Really fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us, Nora. Well, thanks for asking me. Oh, we loved having you. And and uh, we know that all of our listeners are going to just be over the moon when they, when they hear it. <laughs> Listen. Well, that was delightful. That was amazing. Yeah, that was amazing. Listen, the thing that I like the most about having conversations with Nora Roberts And I have had three in my lifetime. No, that's not true. A few more. Well, let me start over. The thing that I like the most about when you talk to Nora Roberts is that she has no, she, there's, there's nothing she won't talk about because she's Nora Roberts. Right. So what are you going to do? I mean, we talk every time about how different the Trailblazer episodes were. One of the things I found myself thinking was, to be a woman who started off, like, not really knowing what royalties were, right? Which is a charming story, of Listen, course. But I don't think that that's – I think that's real. I think a lot of women who were selling books in 1979 were – thank God for Amy Burkauer. Yes. It sounds like Nora really made – I mean, she made such a good decision in that – the earliest days. And we've talked about agents before and – and how important an agent is, but the idea that she had somebody who could really help her move through this industry with purpose and confidence is amazing. But also, I do think that speaks to a large number of women, mostly, in those early days signing contracts and just sort of on a wing in a prayer. I think this still happens, right? I still think that their authors sign their first contracts not really knowing what's going on. But I also think it really speaks to her professionalism that 15 years later, she is the person who understands entirely that it is not okay for someone to steal from her and that she is willing to essentially take on publishing in a way a lot of people probably would not have been. And that, I think, that arc really, I think, is important to me because one of the things we're doing is talking about, like, who built the house and kind of how romance became romance as a genre. But, like, romance is also a business. And one of the things I really appreciate about Nora Roberts is how clear she is that that is what she, she loves telling stories and she loves writing, but she also realizes that it's a business. And I, I found that really, I, I was just really fascinated with, with that whole part of the conversation. 
Yeah, I just, I'm so glad we got to talk about a number of things. I'm really glad we got to hear her talk about, you know, the the work as a job. I think that is a thing that over the years I have struggled with personally and a lot of writers struggle with, particularly women writers who are in relationships and have families. Yeah. Because there is a sense that if you are home and you are writing, then there is that is that is fluid work and you have yes. time to run and take care of the kids or, you know, do the laundry or whatever the thing is. And I mean the it it felt really kind of life-changing when I got that email from her and she was like, can we do it on a weekend? Yes. Because the weekdays are for work. Yeah. And that's great. Like those kinds of things, there are, there are so many lessons embedded in this interview, I think, for all of us as not just writers, but people. Like, right. Take ownership of yourself. Hold the space that is yours. Prioritize your joy and your work and the things that make you feel most you. I feel like these are, there were, there were a lot of moments in this in this particular conversation that made me feel like, oh, I, that's just not, that's not just a writing advice. That's life advice. An everything advice. Yeah. 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 And I mean, and I think that's the part too about, and then like protect that work. But, you mm. know, I mean, and that's the thing. Don't I think, think it's, about the market. Right. 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 And I, I'm. Don't talk about your projects before they're, <laughs> before you're ready to talk about them, which is obviously a slightly sure. more complicated thing sure. when you're early in your career. But sure. And also be willing to stand up for your work and what's right in a lot of different ways. And I think that's the part that, yeah, I mean, again, I think anyone can apply that to what they do. I think there's so many ways in which we're willing to like collectively kind of give up space. And, you know, it's, it's tricky because I think. You know, it's tricky because our work does define us in a lot of ways, regardless of like what that work is, what, you know, that do what you love mentality. And I, but it's like, do what you love, but then, you know, be really good at it or protect it or, you know. I thought it was interesting because we talked about jobs. Mm -hmm. Was it Elda Minger who talked about giving women interesting jobs because you wanted them to see that they could have, be, live however they wanted and in happiness and success. Yeah. But I thought it was fascinating that what what Nora's heroines do is not – she doesn't give them interesting jobs because they're interesting jobs. She gives them jobs they would love. Yes. Right? Right. This bedrock concept of happily ever after – Right is in is embedded in the characters too in a Nora Roberts novel. You know, maybe this maybe this is a urban fantasy. Maybe this is high fantasy. Maybe this is um, you know a contemporary romance. Maybe this is something else. But the characters have joy. They right. get joy from their lives and their work, and I love that. Well, and I was really inspired, I think, too, by thinking about. I mean, obviously, I love romance, right? That's what I want to read, the happily ever after. But I think she's what she's saying is I still – these characters still win at the end. Mm-hmm. I might not be writing a romance, but I am still writing characters who at the end have come out with a win. And that, to me, is 
makes a lot of sense, right? And it makes a lot of sense why readers for, you know, a long time now have been really drawn to her book. She can do anything. She's really willing to take big risks with the kind of stories that she tells. But in the end, if it's even Rourke or if it's, you know, uh, you know, a fantasy or magic, you're still going to have that. You're going to get what you need from a Nora Roberts book, even if it's not yeah, straight romance anymore, right? And so many love letters in these Trailblazer episodes to category, to the way category not just built the genre, not just exploded the genre in the 80s, not just brought the genre to the U.S., all of that. Yeah. But in the way that writing category teaches us storytelling. Yes. And I've said that a thousand times because I really believe that category writers do it better yeah. than all the rest of us. Um, and I think they get it's it's I think they get a real bum rap. Um the the but this I think about this, I think about Jane Ann Krentz, I think about Elda Minger, I think about, you know, many, many people who we have not I don't know when this one is running, so right. I'm not going to give all the other names that we've interviewed. <laughs> right. But so many of the trailblazers have just nailed that that idea that category is doing the storytelling in a different way and in a more in a more distilled, in a more refined way. It's a really good example of the phrase like learning on the job. Yeah. Right? I mean, and that's the thing I think we don't often see that necessarily in action and really as as clearly as we do. Although I think now with self-publishing we do where you can really see like an author's growth arc as you read their books. And that is something that I think is really cool about romance. But I also think I think a lot about I think it's Julia Quinn who says romance is the only genre where we're people are graded on like the quote unquote worst writing as opposed to the best. But we want authors to be getting better on the job. I'm not interested in You don't have a choice. Right. I mean, that's how it should work, right? Yeah. I mean, if you if you think about it's the only job, I mean, aside from maybe comedy, <laughs> right, where we have to get better by virtue of putting our product into the world, not yeah. knowing, right? We can't focus group it. We can't We can't practice. I mean, we can practice, but we can't practice over and over and over again to, like, run the mile slightly shorter, slightly shorter. Like, right. we have to put our work into the world and then see if it lands, and but, then try again. But at the same time, I was very interested in Nora Roberts saying, I can't think about the market either. No. I have to write what I want to write, and that's how I'm going to find. And readers are going to go with me or they're not. But if you – that there's a, there's a way in which it's also like madness to try and – Chase the market, maybe, right? Like, what's I think that's the key, right? Yeah, chasing the market is it's just and and again, I mean, there's something slightly look, it's Nora Roberts, there's a lot different right. here, right? I mean, Nora Roberts doesn't have to think about the market anymore, right? And when you're writing cat, when you were writing category in 1980, it was the Wild West, sure. Like you could, if you could just deliver 60,000 solid words, you know. That was good. We were we we were all eating it up. Yeah, I will say that I think that the the challenge now is that 
for a lot of romance writers, production, like writing fast, being able to yeah. write the stepbrother moment, romance at the stepbrother romance time right. is a way to survive as a romance writer. I think what's interesting here, and it's something that I wish that we had talked a little bit more about, or, or maybe I, maybe the whole conversation is that is this conversation, but that kind of quick turnaround, chasing the market, making sure that when X is popular, you're writing X is an interest is a way to survive in the market, but is it a way to create a legacy as in the market? And I don't, I don't know the answer to that because I think we are so early we're just now, you know, what, f- six or seven years out from that kind of writing and romance. So I will be interested to see how that progresses. Right. I mean, that's the thing. Like, self-publishing makes it possible for people to, you know, get something out that's really responsive, that's really fast. Yeah. And it's and, – and at the same time, you know, and that's the thing, like, people maybe don't understand, like – Nora, the Nora Roberts pipeline, right? Like she's writing books that are going to be published two years from now, probably. Nora is an incredibly fast writer, right? So when we talk, when you point to the people who are writing six, seven, eight books a year in independent publishing, in self-publishing, you're talking about Nora Roberts's, right? Like she, you know, as she said, um, Phyllis Whitney said, <laughs> called her up and said, "You need a hobby because she was just writing too much, <laughs> too much. Quote, too much. Sure, sure. You need a hobby. Yeah. She's like, okay, JD Rob is a hobby. The what publisher you- of HarperCollins should call me and say, Sarah, stop with your hobbies. We need <laughs> you to write some more books. <laughs> There's so much pressure on authors now to be on TikTok or Twitter or Instagram, and." At some point, I am like, what about the books? Right? Yep. What about the I books? Mean, what is it costing you? She said that, right? If she didn't have to, if she had to do it, she wouldn't do any of it. She's lucky enough she has, you know, her her assist her, her PR person who, you know, manages the the boards at Nora Roberts headquarters. And I will say, like, that is a thing that a lot of us are asking, you know, how much of this do we, I hate to use the word have to do, but I mean, how much of this is is a requirement for the job and how much of this is selling books? Like is it's actually in service to the books and how much of this is, could be, how much of this time could be better used writing? And I think that's the part that, you know, every individual author is sort of answering for themselves. I think it's clear from the outside that publishing houses are kind of like, okay, PR is on you, so make that happen. And that becomes something that feels really, I, I can only be sympathetic. This, this is not me shaming people for being on TikTok by any means. This is me saying, I, I, I just hope that it's not costing you something. Right? I just hope it's not costing you something. And that's the part where I think people have to figure out. Well, you know what? I hope that it's giving people the joy. Yeah. That writing gives Nora Roberts. Right. Right. Um, Right. That, that. That's that's what I really took away. I'm not. I'm not sure that's what she was aiming for us to take (laughs) away. But my takeaway really was like, if there's no joy in it, then 
is it even worth it? And yeah. I and I really I think that's so important. And last season we talked so much about joy and romance and the work of romance being about joy. And um I don't know. Choose joy. Choose joy like and maybe you'll end up like Nora Roberts, which wouldn't be so bad. No. And not at all. Pretty great. You are listening to Faded Mates. This is the Trailblazers series. You can go to trailblazers.fadedmates.net to listen to all of the incredible interviews that we have done with other writers who built the house in many, many ways. And you can find us on fadedmates.net or on Twitter at fadedmates or on Instagram at fadedmatespod. Thanks to this week's sponsors, and we'll see you next time. Chapter 1. Warner At the start of every season, I'm usually the first player at the rink, mostly because the months off with nothing on my schedule drives me crazy. I've tried to pick up hobbies, but nothing quiets my brain like skating and pushing the puck around the ice. It's been the sole focus of my life for a long time. This year is different, though. Last year, I was traded to the Florida Fury mid-season, so I'm still one of the new guys in the locker room, which normally wouldn't be a problem. I'm easygoing and a great player, so I've always gotten along with my teammates. I'm usually well-respected. Before Jacobs plays for Florida Fury, and Ford Jacobs would love to murder me with his bare hands. And after what I did, I don't blame him. Ford I can deal with. His angry outbursts toward me when I miss a play, his wanting to point out all my mistakes to our fellow teammates, I can handle. It's another Jacobs who is the cause of my lack of enthusiasm about starting this season. Ford's sister, Imogen, should be living in New York City where a woman like her belongs, but instead she's now a Florida resident because she's finished grad school and is trying to figure out her life, and hey, why not do it in proximity to her prick of a brother and his baby girl? Every night I'm alone in my bed, it takes every ounce of willpower I can muster not to drive down to her place on the beach, fall to my knees, and beg her to give us another chance. But unless I want to be the reason Florida Fury doesn't perform well this season, I have to stay far away from her. The last time I was around her was at Ford's daughter's birthday party, and we ended up in a bedroom together. I just wanted to talk to her, apologize, and explain myself— but for a moment, we were back to being those two kids meeting in secret and unable to keep their hands off one another. But it didn't take long for her to snap back to reality, and her eyes flared with her true feelings for me, confirming that I'm the monster she'll never trust again. I have to put all that aside, though. I'm the new guy, and this is my job. I cannot fuck up and put my livelihood in jeopardy. My mom and my siblings depend on me. Sure, I have accounts set up for each of them that should cover their college tuition and my mom's living expenses for a good part of her life, but after living without a financial safety net for too long, I know you can never have enough set aside. Just another reason Imogen Jacobs will never be mine again. I can't fight for her like I want to, because there's just too much for me to lose. I grab my bag from my truck and head into the Florida Fury Arena. Walking down the hallway toward the locker room, I hear the voices of my teammates echoing off the walls. I'll admit one thing. It's the best locker room I've ever been a part of. The razzing and joking and the camaraderie between the guys are awesome. They each have each other's backs. I haven't been part of something like this since high school, when Ford and I played together. Not that I'm really part of it. I walk in and the locker room falls silent, all eyes on me. See what I mean? 
I'm far from a card-carrying member of their inside jokes and fun, but I'm hoping with more ice time and more points on the board, they'll respect me. It's the wedding crasher. Tweedy, previously my biggest competition for starting left wing, breaks the silence. A few weeks back, the higher-ups told me I'll be replacing Tweedy on the starting lineup this season. That second half of last season was a test, and I won. I don't know if Tweedy knows yet, but he will after today's practice when he's on the second line. The wedding crasher comment is in reference to the fact that I ended up at the same resort as Ford and his entire wedding party over the summer. Every player was invited except for me. So when I found out they were there, I was going to leave and be the ostracized ogre Ford intended me to feel like, until I saw Imogen wearing a bikini. Hey, I made it clear. My willpower is made of tissue paper when it comes to her. Then Ford got wind of my presence and made his displeasure known. What's up, Langley? Corey nods. Corey is a rookie, but we were traded to the Fury at the same time, so I head in his direction. The last three lockers are for me, Corey, and a veteran player, Kane, who was traded last year when people assumed he was going to retire. Hey, guys. I drop my stuff and ignore the bad vibes on the other side of the locker room. Ready for warm-ups? Corey asks. We met up a few times during the off-season, did some drills. Unfortunately, Corey knows that his time on the ice will probably be minimal since Aiden Drake holds the same position in the starting lineup, but I reminded Corey that he needed to be ready should the time come, which it will. Take this time to develop his skills some more, get more experience and confidence on the ice. Drake is only growing older, and it feels like every year in hockey ages you in dog years. Yeah. I blow out of breath and get all my shit organized in my locker. Coach comes in five minutes later, when most of the guys are already suited up. I'm just getting my skates laced. Coach focuses on me for a beat longer. I'm the one who has something to prove. They're giving me an amazing opportunity with the starter position, and if I want to continue to have a hockey career, it's time to put my shit with Imogen to the side and concentrate on what matters. I should have been here earlier, not dragging my feet. He claps and addresses the room. We're going to do warm-ups that Mr. Gerhardt wants to talk to you all. Is this about his daughter taking over? Ford is the only one who has the nerve to ask if the rumors that have been passed around in the off-season are true. Just be ready to behave and not act like a class full of kindergartners. He turns his back on us and heads out the doors toward the ice. All of us head to the ice rink, where the coaches have us do our first conditioning drills since we left. Most of us get workouts in during off-season, but there are always a few who use their time off as a vacation. I'm shocked to discover that this year it's Ford who's the turtle. He's barely able to catch his breath between drills. I guess love and marriage have changed Ford's priorities. Richie, did you do anything at all in the off-season? Maxim yells, his skates digging into the ice before he heads in the opposite direction. I focused on a very specific kind of workout, Ford jokes, which we all know already since he's recently married. You have all that time with a kid in the house? Maxim asks. It's called nap time. Wait until you finally have one. Coach's whistle blows and we all stop and face him. Okay, boys, Mr. Gerhardt is on his way down. But before Coach can finish whatever he was going to say, Mr. Gerhardt and his daughter Jana walk into the rink with Imogen following a few steps behind. Every muscle in my body tenses. What is she doing here?
Coach either hears them or senses them because he looks back over his shoulder. Well, never mind, here he is. Thanks, Fittner. Mr. Gerhardt claps him on the shoulder. Hello, boys. Mr. Gerhardt, we all say in unison. He's probably one of the most feared owners in the league. Tends to not listen to the advisors he hires, but goes on instinct, which has to be why I'm standing here right now. All of his scouts must have warned him that putting Ford and me on the same team could ruin the team dynamic needed to win hockey games. You all know my daughter, Jana. He motions to her on his left. Jana steps forward. She's the epitome of dress for success. Nice pantsuit, hair and makeup are flawless, and she's wearing stilettos. We are so happy to be here for the start of another season. I have a few announcements to make, and before any of you ask, no, I'm not taking over for my dad, but I will be handling a few more things around here. The entire time Jana is speaking, my eyes soak in Imogen. Just like always, I feel her presence. It's like a living, breathing film that coats my skin when she's near. She's wearing her blonde hair long and straight and has on a professional dress that hugs her curves. Her blue eyes, like her brother's, sparkle, even if they're dodging mine. Instinct tells me it's trepidation at being so near to me. I have the same effect on her as she does on me. Most of you will know Imogen as Ford's sister, but she's now our new hype girl. God knows she understands all those apps better than me, and I'm smart enough to hire people smarter than me. A groan echoes through the empty arena. I glance over to find Ford's gaze lasered in on me. He's probably worried because we both know at some point I'll have to work with Imogen. I'm a hot commodity the team paid top dollar for, a new face for the franchise. Not being arrogant, but my bastard of a father passed down one hell of a face, so I know they'll likely want to make my presence known with the public. I turn my head and face the team owner again. With all due respect, what about Barbara? Ford asks. Surely she could handle the hype. Jana narrows her eyes at Ford. Imogen works under me. Barbara is now assisting my father. I thought she had some great ideas. Ford keeps going, and Imogen's back grows stiffer. Ford? Imogen says with a tone of shut the fuck up, you're going to ruin this opportunity for me. Jana crosses her arms and challenges Ford. If memory serves, she had you visit a senior center last year. And they loved me. I guarantee I made fans. And what else do they have to do there but to watch hockey? Did you read the literature on the senior center she sent you to? How about the sign outside? Jana tilts her head. Of course. Ford's arrogance is what drew me to him as a friend in high school, and he clearly hasn't lost any of it. Then don't you think it's a problem that it was a memory care center? Meaning the minute you walked out, they probably forgot why you were even there? Ford scoffs. I wouldn't mind getting to know Jana. Anyone who isn't afraid to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Ford is worth knowing. The team snickers and laughs. Imogen glances up, and our eyes catch for the briefest moment before she diverts her gaze. I'll have meetings this weekend. Some of you will do more heavy lifting than others in the marketing department, as always. Please remember that the contracts you signed included the stipulation of dealing with the media. Imogen has already brought up some great competitions before the games start, and with Coach Vittner's approval, one of you might be asked to participate. Please know, if you give Imogen trouble, 
I will go big sister on you. She eyes forward. I can't imagine if she ever takes over this empire. Kane whispers to me. She'd have us all in tutus skating down the rink in some speed competition. I glance over. Do you know her? I know of her, and that's enough. I nod. Mr. Gerhardt claps his hands in front of himself. That's it, everyone. Let's get him, boys. This is our year. I've bought you some great talent with Langley, Freeman, and Burroughs, and I have no doubt with their addition to the team we're going to bring home the cup. No one says anything, and he turns to head back up to his office. Go Florida Fury! Jana pumps her fist in the air, and it looks robotic, but everyone cheers. I watch the three of them head out single file. Okay, well, I watch one backside more than the others. It's a secret pleasure. Like sneaking one of the mini chocolate bars out of the candy dish at the doctor's office. Fuck, did he seriously just say that? Corey whispers next to me. Yeah, talk about a target on our backs. Kane says, Okay, let's try a new line. Freeman center, Langley left wing, and Kane goalie. We'll add train as right wing. Let's see what you guys have. We all skate to our positions. I'm not surprised that we're skating against Aiden Drake, Ford, and Tweedy. The Gerhards might as well have put signs on us that say we're each other's biggest competition. This can only end badly. I'm begging you to hit me. Ford says to me at the line, one hit and I'm going to knock out your teeth. We're teammates now, remember? He scoffs. Don't remind me. Drake and Freeman jockey for the puck and the fun begins. Too bad my mind is too preoccupied with Imogen to prove my worth on the ice. Chapter 2 Imogen Whoa! Jana shuts the door to her office after we return from the ice rink. Okay, I've heard some rumors and I saw the fight at Ford's wedding, but I've never felt that. Her office is all girl boss with gold, pink, and black decor. Signs on the walls read hustle, grind, and execute, along with other motivational sayings. She walks over to her mini fridge and pulls out two cans of sparkling water, then meets me at her white couch. Felt what? I ask, accepting the sparkling water. This job is my chance to make something of myself without using my family name, and although I love Jana and she's more friend than boss, I don't want her thinking I'll be distracted by Warner. Especially since I have a meeting in an hour with Mr. Gerhardt to discuss how to make Warner Florida Fury's it man. She stares at me with wide eyes as she opens her can. Don't pretend with me. I'm older and wiser, remember? After slipping off her heels, she tucks her legs under her as if we're about to have girl time. I love the way Jana can move seamlessly between professional businesswoman to a girl's girl. Maybe that's why I feel a kinship with Jana. She's so much like my friends back home in New York. Friends I was never able to be honest with about what actually happened between Warner and me. Come on. If you don't tell me what's going on with him, then you're fired. I balk and she laughs. I'm kidding, but I am here if you need me. You look like you need to talk. I sip my sparkling water, the raspberry flavor a delight. We just, um... Well, he was Ford's best friend in high school. 
She waits with her eyebrows arched toward her hairline. Everyone knows that. There's so much speculation about why they hate each other. I'd say Ford hates Warner. I'm not sure Warner ever hated anyone. Jana licks her lips as though I gave her some bit of juicy gossip to nibble on. Especially not his best friend's sister. I shrug, sipping my drink to distract myself. Or act like maybe she's right, but I'm not confirming either way. I mean, I'm an only child, but I always wanted an older brother who had friends. Friends who looked like Warner Langley. Uh-huh. I sip my water again. Okay, I see you're not into this, but if you need to talk, let me know. Ask Presley. I'm a good friend, and I can tell when someone needs one. Sitting back up, she slips her perfectly manicured toes back into her heels. Hate to break it to you, but we have to go through some marketing things that involve the man. Please don't think I'm unable to handle the job. I can be around him. It's not a problem. She stops behind her desk, grabbing a remote that shuts the shades of her office and brings a big screen down from the ceiling. She presses some buttons on her computer, and an image of Warner from when he was drafted shows on the screen. My heart plummets like an elevator with the cables cut. I was not prepared to see him like this, because that 18-year-old kid is the boy I fell in love with in what seems like another lifetime. I'm thinking about really digging deep into his story, so it's good that you know him. What? My voice is quiet because the last thing Warner would ever want is anyone digging around in his past. He keeps that part of his life quiet, and even if I don't check up on what's going on in his life now, it's clear that he still keeps the ones he loves out of the spotlight. Did you know there's barely anything about him anywhere? Sure, he graduated from the same Upper East Side Manhattan private school as you and Ford, but other than that, nothing. I think we need to dig deeper with our guys. What made them want to play hockey? Who did they look up to as kids? What is their family like and who are the loved ones they left behind? A deep dive to pull on the heartstrings. Warner has that boy next door who grew up into a sexy man vibe that'll put butts in seats and sell merchandise. She sits down and a video plays of an interview he did shortly after he was drafted. In the clip, he's humble and kind and the arrogance that this league has instilled in him hasn't been developed yet but I still see a glimpse of his cocky side from being the popular kid in high school. At least until everything went to shit. Everyone thought they knew him, but they really didn't. While Ford went to college, Warner was drafted into the pros. I wonder what it must have been like for him to be thrust into the spotlight at that age after everything that went down in his senior year at high school. God, he's a magnet! Guys are going to want to be him, and women are going to want to fuck him, Jana says. I quietly drink my seltzer water, pushing back the memories from that time in my life. A time when I felt as though everything I'd lived for was stripped away. It wasn't until years later that I realized that's the power of young love. As Jana talks about what a marketing dream Warner is, I'm reminded of the first time I saw him. Hell, the first time I heard someone speak his name, I knew there was something special about him. I was just leaving American Lit when Cece hooked her arm through mine and leaned in close, lowering her voice. New guy, senior, 
Warner Langley. I bet his family owns Langley Wines. If he was a senior, that meant he was Ford's age, which also meant my brother would make sure to tell the new guy I was off limits. Ford had restrictions about who I dated. I could only date sophomores or younger, no one older than that because he said then I'd be going into his territory. I swear he's like the rescue pug Mom brought home from Morgan once. He peed on everything from plants to furniture to people's legs. Nothing was safe in our house. Rest in peace, Rinky. How hot are we talking? I asked. Cece looked around and leaned in so close I could smell her strawberry chapstick. I haven't actually seen him yet. Eloise told me he was in her chemistry class. Quiet, sat in the back, but tall, built, and a set of mysterious eyes. She giggled. He can't be that hot. And I've never heard of a Langley. I stopped at my locker and opened it. I just told you, Langley Wines. I'd heard of the brand. My parents owned some bottles. I don't know. No way he's that hot. I looked at myself in the mirror and reapplied my berry lipstick. In the middle of puckering my lips, Cece nudged me and I stood straight. There he is, she whispered. I turned and locked eyes with Warner. Jumbled words floated in my head and I was unable to form a coherent thought. The boy was drop-dead gorgeous. He had it all. Even in Lauder's uniform of khaki pants, white shirt, plaid tie, and blue blazer, somehow it looked drool-worthy on him. The instant a smile crept over his lips, a rush of heat traveled down my body. With a cocky nod in my direction, he passed by us. As soon as I heard the voice when he passed, all the marshmallow gooiness in my body transformed to stone. That's my little sister, so it goes without saying. Turn your fucking head around unless you want it shoved into the lockers. Ford was beside him. I hadn't even noticed. Ford, you're such an asshole, Cece called to him. He flipped her off and the two of them turned the corner, heading down the stairs. I swear, one day I'm going to dropkick your brother on his ass. She hadn't known then that it was Warner she'd end up wanting to dropkick. Hello? I blink and look at Jana, who's all smiles. I lost you for a minute there. Still not ready to give me all the deets on what went down between you and Warner? Jana seems trustworthy, but she's also my boss, my new boss. And I am not going to pull out old baggage that could jeopardize my new position. The minute she offered me this job when we were at Ford's wedding, I felt it in my soul that this position was meant for me. After years of searching for my place, getting an art history degree, working some at Jacob's Enterprises, and never finding anything that lit me up inside, somehow this woman in front of me knew before I did that this was the position for me. If I tell her about my history with Warner, she's sure to bring it up with her dad— and one thing I know about Mr. Gerhardt is that the boys on the ice always come first. We just went to school together. I was just remembering when he transferred in. He was definitely the it man on campus. So he's always been charismatic. I kind of hoped he was some nerdy guy turned hot jock. She laughs and sips her drink. Nerdy guy? No. Never. I shake my head. 
Okay, I told you my thoughts. What are you thinking? I glance at my empty page. Damn it all to hell, this is not a good start. I rack my brain for anything she might bite on. Well, right now I'm assuming men are the ones who primarily buy the tickets and the merchandise. But if we can get their wives or girlfriends involved, it should increase profitability and demand. Then we've expanded our market. Maybe we even have a chance to get groups of women talking about the Fury the same way they talk about The Bachelor the day after it airs. And what's going to get a woman who isn't a hockey fan into the arena? A gorgeous guy with a good story. But they have to get to know him. She nods. I like the direction you're heading, but be more specific. Feeling my confidence pushed to the surface, I go on. They need to see interviews with him. Candid ones and not just the usual ones where he can use all the hockey lingo about getting pucks deep and creating traffic in front of the net. They need to see more, like how he handles himself when he's not prepared. Impromptu stuff, like meet and greets, fun social media videos, win a date and donate to a charity. He can pick a charity and talk about why it's so important to him. She points her pen to me and starts scribbling. I love this. Are you sure he'll agree to it? The Warner I used to know was pretty private. I hate to bring it up, but I'd hate even more for us to do all this legwork just for him to give us a big fuck you. My dad is clear with anyone who joins the team. They are to participate in any marketing activity we request, within reason. I think there's a meeting scheduled with him tomorrow, so we'll go over all this then. If you could really hammer out these ideas tonight, what they'll look like, how we'll pull them off, we'll go over them in the afternoon and present them to my dad and Warner right before the team flies out to Chicago. Sure thing. I stand from the couch. Jana continues, smiling at me. Last chance. I shake my head. I swear there's nothing there. At least not anymore. That's what I'll tell myself for the rest of my life. Sometimes people don't come into your life for any other reason than to teach you a lesson. And Warner Langley taught me never to trust a man.